Good morning, church. My name is Jason. I serve as pastor here at Park Logan Square. I'm sorry that I'm not with you in the flesh this morning, but good to be with you this way. I want to first begin by saying, man, much love to the Maze Sioux event that has happened now two times at Monroe Elementary. So grateful for the ways that people are connecting, engaging, meeting, befriending our neighbors, and grateful for many of our neighbors who are beginning to come and be part of our church as well. So if you uh, know that we are in the midst of a transition moving from Park Logan Square to become Church in the Square on September 1st, and we're doing our best to keep you uh, apprised of all the different changes happening, things that we are working on. And I'm happy to report uh, just a couple of weeks ago that we officially ratified our new bylaws, we officially welcomed new officers, and we officially um, affirmed the elder terms. And so all of that means is that we were able to file for our EIN number, which is a business filing, so now we can continue to progress and moving forward with a lot of the details that I'm grateful I have helped with. Um, and so we'd encourage you to continue to be prayerful about this transition, about this change, about this new church, many different details and things that we are working on and excited about uh, what the Lord is up to in the midst of all of that. With that being said, would you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 15, or continuing our series in the book of Acts. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible, and I pray that you will, or I ask you to meet us in Acts chapter 1, verse 15 through 26. And with that, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us, help us as we come to your word, to know the truth and beauty uh, of Jesus. I pray that when we come to your word that you would humble us. pray that when we come to you, you would teach us kindly by your grace. Help us to understand what we cannot on our own. Thank you for the various stories and men and women represented in our gathering. Pray that in all of those different uh, moments and seasons of life that people are in, would you meet us right where we are? Would you help us to see uh, and taste and enjoy the brilliance of your grace, your goodness? for us. So help me, help me to be clear and responsible with your word and help all of us. Father, as we hear you speak to us, that we'd submit, surrender to that word for our good and your glory. We ask in Jesus name, everybody agreed and said, amen. All right. Just because I'm not there doesn't mean you don't have to say amen. <laughs> Acts is a story about how the church started, but it's not a story. It's not a book primarily about the church. Ultimately, Acts, like every other story, every other book of the scriptures is about God himself. It is revealing his goodness, his nature, his person, who he is. And so it's about the gracious work in and through people as he makes for himself a people. And that people saved and sent by Jesus through his spirit, that's the church. Jesus first mentions the word church in Matthew 16, right on the heels of the apostle Peter saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responding to that, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. In other words, Peter, Simon, same, same guy, same, different name, same guy. Uh, blessed are you. And on this rock, on the confession that you've just made, I will build my church. And so Jesus mentions church here, and it's a word that means assembly. It is the people of God, and Jesus uses this word as a way of describing the collection of his people. And from that point on, after Jesus introduces the concept of the church, Jesus begins to talk about his death. 
about his sacrifice of himself on the cross. And this is when Peter responds and says, far be it for you, Lord, don't, don't do this. But, but he, he pursues this nevertheless. It's the will of his father to do so. And so Jesus um, not only goes to the cross and dies, but is literally buried for three days. He is risen from the dead, and then he ascends. And this is where we looked at last week in the beginning of Acts uh, chapter 1, that he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And though at first blush, the ascension, that is the going to the right hand of the Father, which has sort of a dual meaning, if you will, not only physically ascending, but in, in a royal sense, that he is taking power that is due him because of who he is and the work that he has accomplished. But it, in, in the first blush, it seems like the ascension is antithetical to building the church. After all, how can he build the church if he is leaving? In fact, this is a profoundly important aspect of the gospel. See, the ascension, as many writers put it, is the detonator of the gospel. In other words, when Jesus ascends, he therefore is then able to apply the effects and the power of the gospel upon the people of God through the Spirit of God. And so in ascending, Jesus is preparing to apply the effects, the beauties, the treasures of the gospel upon any who would believe. And he does this through the baptism or the washing of the Holy Spirit, making us holy, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, making us able to obey and follow God. See, religion says that you can follow God by yourself. The gospel tells us that Jesus has done a work in order to empower you to follow him. And this is what we looked at last week. But where we're picking up the story today, the Spirit has not yet come. And the people of God, his disciples, and his closest followers are gathered together in the upper room, and they're waiting. Jesus told them to wait. And so they are waiting together for the promise of God to be fully fulfilled. And that's where we'll pick up the story. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about a hundred and 20. Before we get to the words of Peter, look at the transition that Luke, the writer of Acts, uses. He says, in those days. This gives us a clear transition and yet a clear connection between the previous context and the current context of this particular passage. In other words, in those days when the disciples were still waiting for the Holy Spirit. In those days, they were still waiting for the helper that Jesus promised to come. In those days, we find the disciples in a moment of waiting, in a moment of wondering, in a moment of curiosity. I wonder if you've been there. See, as they are waiting, it's then that Peter starts leading. Now, this is amazing. If you remember, Peter actually denies Jesus. Yes, the same person, the same one who said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, pretty soon by a campfire denies that he even knows who Jesus is. I wonder if you can relate. Some days feeling like you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and other days feeling like, I don't know who he is. I don't identify with him. I don't know who you're talking about. This juxtaposition is startling. This juxtaposition is startling. One minute, you are the Christ. The next minute, I have no idea who he is. Peter gives us great hope, doesn't he? Peter gives us great hope. See, because if you find yourself inconsistent, forgetful, sinful, and more, Peter shows us in his life that we are never outside of the reach of grace and the hope of God. God uses messy, inconsistent people all the time. In fact, a lot of the times, he even uses them in leadership. 
Peter denied Jesus, but then Jesus in John 21 reinstates Peter with this call of apostleship. And so as Peter leads, there are about 120 brothers. Notice that detail in verse 15. About 120 brothers, brothers and sisters gathered. That's the disciples, believers, followers of Jesus. They were following Jesus in other areas as well. So this gathering has taken place in Jerusalem, but we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that about 500 or so believers uh, could gather, or rather existed, lived in Galilee. And, but at the end of the day, 500 in one particular area, 120 in another area, that's not a lot of people. That's not a lot of people and perhaps smatterings of different collections of people all over the first century Asia Minor. But at the end of the day, that's not a lot of people. Especially when you consider that one of the most amazing things about Jesus' earthly ministry was the crowds that followed him. Have you ever thought about this? The crowds that followed Jesus in the Gospels seem to have disappeared by the beginning of Acts. The crowds that followed Jesus in the Gospels seem to have disappeared by the time of the writing of Acts. So notice, as we move into the work of seeing Jesus begin to build his church, the crowds are gone, and 120 are hiding, wondering, waiting, curious in an upper room. You see, in the Gospels, crowds gathered, but they left. They leave when things get costly and uncomfortable. John 6 shows us this. In the Gospels, crowds gather, but they never are fully converted. In fact, in many respects, they're just in awe and in the way. Matthew 8 shows us this. In the Gospels, uh, crowds gather, but Jesus ministers very personally. Someone touches his cloak in the middle of a crowd, and he senses it in Mark chapter 5. In the Gospels, crowds gather, but Jesus doesn't trust them. He doesn't give himself to them. John 2 reveals this reality of Jesus' heart. In the Gospels, crowds gather, but not because Jesus is trying to gather a crowd. In fact, sometimes crowds gather while Jesus is trying to be by himself. Moms and dads, can I get an amen? Matthew 14 tells us this, that a lot of times the crowd gathers when, they just, when Jesus just wants to be alone for a moment. Yet no matter how the crowds gather and when they do, Jesus always sees them, acknowledges them, loves them when they do show up. Isn't it interesting that we think today the best, most innovative, coolest, and more important churches draw crowds? But when the early church begins, it's small, it's hiding, it's waiting, it's wondering, it's curious about what's next. As this group is huddled together, waiting, Peter speaks. Look at his words in verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all the bowel, all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akil Dama. That means, or that is, rather, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism 
beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter speaks to his brothers and sisters. He speaks to them about the scriptures. Generally speaking, he speaks about the, how the word instructs the replacement process for Judah, or, or Judas rather, that they must replace Judas. And it is somewhat does this in somewhat of a gory fashion, recounting Judas's demise. But before he gets specific about what Scripture says needs to be fulfilled and why, he gives his listeners, and therefore he gives us, a rich understanding of what we'll call of what is called bibliology, or that is the study or understanding of the Bible. In fact, I think he tells us at least three things very quickly at the beginning of this particular address. The first thing that he shows us is that Scripture reveals God's character. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 16. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Starting with the assumption that the Word of God necessarily must be fulfilled points to the faithfulness of God. And over and over again, this is a vital role of the Bible. The Bible tells us about God himself, above stories and principles and morals and characters, right? The Bible's chief aim, above all of your favorite characters, above all of your favorite stories, the Bible's chief aim is to teach us about the nature of God, who he is, what he is like, and what he has accomplished. So first, Peter tells us that scripture reveals the character of God. Secondly, what Peter shows sort of implicitly in his language is that scripture is spoken by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's inspired. Notice the language with the, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. Peter also understands that scriptures, the scriptures are inspired by God's spirit. What we have in the Bible is not merely a collection of stories of religious history and lists of morals, again, or commandments. No, what we have are the very words of God. And therefore, we should read this word unlike any other word, unlike any other book. Because as one writer puts it, these are the words that when you read them, they read you back. When you think you are hunting down information, all of a sudden it becomes a mirror that reveals and shows you your soul. This is only true. This could only be true because these are the very words of God, the one who knows all things and can do all things. Not only is scripture revealing of God's character, not only is scripture uh, from the Holy Spirit, but scripture employs human authors. Notice what he says, that these words come by the mouth of David. To be sure, scripture is authored by God himself, and the power of the word of God comes from God himself, but human beings are used as instruments. This tells us much about God's heart to not simply make human beings, but to invite us to use us for his purposes, his glory, his work. This is amazing what God can do on his own without us. He chooses to invite in and to share the joy, to share the purposefulness in his world. He used David to write the scriptures and Paul and John and Peter and countless others to write the very words of God. Having implicitly articulated his general bibliology or understanding of the Bible, Peter gets explicit and specific now. It's about the prophetic word that David spoke about Judas. Judas was the disciple of Jesus who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. It was because Judas that the religious leaders of that day knew who Jesus was and where to find him, to try him, to put him on trial, and to execute him. First of all, isn't it amazing 
the, the language here that uh, we see in verses 16, 17, and 18, that Judas was a part of the company of the disciples. It's amazing that someone like Judas, if God knows everything, was included in with the disciples. Somebody who he knew would betray him, he keeps around. God knows everything, and yet he, that yet Jesus welcomes Judas into his ministry. He was numbered with the disciples and shared the responsibility of walking with Jesus. This tells us much about the company that we ought to keep. Secondly, Luke tells us what Judas does with his money. He buys a field and hangs himself, and the gory details Luke records here, here tells us about Judas's death. Thirdly, Peter quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, using both as sort of a comprehensive collection of words in order to reveal the demise not only of Judas, but what it is to replace Judas. Psalm 69 says, May their camp be, des be a desolation about the curse upon Judas's lineage and his family. Psalm 109 says, May his days be few. Many, may another take his office about replacing Judas with another apostle. However, the necessity of Scripture's fulfillment rises out of these particular details. But why must Scripture be fulfilled? What does it even mean for Scripture to be fulfilled? Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked. Scripture must be fulfilled because God is faithful to his word. The creation of crown, I think it illustrates this really well. There's this rhythm and cadence, as you know, in the very, very beginning of the story of the Bible, the very beginning of the story of creation. It's God said, and it was so, and it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. Over and over again, this rhythm takes place. Over and over again, this rhythm is cast over the creation narrative. And it gives a rhythm of what God says being so and good. In other words, God's words are as good as reality. What he says is accomplished. What he says happens. See, God's word must be fulfilled because God is faithful to his word. In fact, the only thing in all of creation that God said that was not so was when he talked when he gave a commandment, a command to the first couple, Adam and Eve, what he told them, do not eat of any tree of the garden, and they did, and it was not good. Therefore, the scriptures must be fulfilled because that's who God is. Additionally, scripture must be fulfilled in the sense that his word has paved the way for his plan. In other words, God in his kindness tells us in his word what the future holds, whether he speaks of his character, the carrying out of the gospel story, or the end of all things, where this is all going. God has promised to us what will take place as his plan is fulfilled. And all that he has said has been accomplished. Friend, hear this. Brother, sister, hear this. There is not a single promise of God that has expired without fulfillment. There is not a single promise of God that has expired without fulfillment. God is true to his word. Scripture is fulfilled in two ways. This is why it must be fulfilled. Now, now how is it fulfilled? It must be fulfilled is fulfilled in two basic ways. The first is perhaps what we think of most commonly as prophetic fulfillment, what we'll just call prophetic fulfillment. 
A prophetic word may be a predictive or prediction or a promise of God. It might be good or bad. Think about passages like Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God promising and predicting that through the offspring of Eve, he would crush the head of the serpent. Think about Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant. Think about Daniel 7 and the beasts that are communicated there. Think about Revelation and the end of time. Think about prophetic fulfillment as God making an explicit promise and keeping his word. But that's only one of two. The second is perhaps less obvious, but I believe much more vital for our comprehension of God's faithfulness and of God's word. And we'll simply call it typological fulfillment. So first we have prophetic fulfillment and now typological fulfillment. I hope you brought a pen and paper today. This is for your joy. A typological word is much more subtle and comes about in a storyline or a narrative or an overarching theme. Think about Jonah, called by God but reluctantly obeys and then sulks about God's grace. See, when we read that story, we naturally long for a better and more loving servant of God. Think about King David taking the place of Saul. David rules with distinction, but he leaves much to be desired, and he dies in a very broken, cold-hearted, kind of feeble way. So we naturally long for a true or better king. Think about the uh, infatuation that Israel has with idols, icons, images of false gods. They constantly are left wanting and dead, and therefore we long for a true and better encounter with the real and living God. Think about typological fulfillment as God using history and characters to prepare the way for the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the true and better prophet, priest, and king. See, either way, fulfillment is about making complete or whole or perfect the word of God. In fact, the Greek word for fulfillment consists of terms, consists of definitions like to fill, reflecting the Hebrew concept of the word to, to bring to completion or bring to an end or to make perfect. And all of scripture, prophetic and typological, all of those words that cast a fulfillment must be fulfilled. If the plan of God is to happen, and if the character of God is to be demonstrated and upheld. After all, God's word, first and foremost, is his self-disclosure. It's his way of teaching us about who he is. See, Peter's short treatise tells us much about God. Peter's short treatise tells us much about the fulfilled word of God. Every promise filled with God's faithfulness tells us much about who he is. And therefore it anticipates the words of the Apostle Paul found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, speaking about Jesus Christ, that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen and glory for his, or an, an amen to God for his glory. You see, every prophetic word was meant to pave the way so that you and I would not miss Jesus Christ. Christ, that we would see him, that we would anticipate him so much so that when he shows up, we would recognize him because we've been longing for him throughout the entire story. Additionally, every other typological word finds perfection in Jesus. He is the true and better Jonah. He is the true and better David. He is the true and better Israel. He is God who is not merely an image of the invisible God. He is God 
in the flesh. And so John could write with joy this in his gospel account. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. See, what the disciples, particularly Peter, knew in part, now you and I know with much greater joy and severity and degree that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's word, both prophetically and typologically. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of every direct anticipation of the Messiah and every implicit whisper of rescue. The fulfillment of all the promises of God and the incarnation itself are the truest representation of God's character. God is good. God is true. God is trustworthy. God is undefeated. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is powerful. God is faithful. God is able. God is unfettered. God is authoritative. God is honest. God is perfect. And I hope a few of you just said, amen. Can we say amen? Amen. Through, though this is true, Though all of this is true about who God is, the people of God are still waiting in the upper room, wondering, curious, and longing for all things to be fulfilled. They're waiting. Waiting on the words of Jesus. Waiting on the Spirit of God to come. Waiting for God yet again to be true to His Word. And I wonder, think about it. I wonder what it would have been like to be in, be in that room. Yes, you had heard of the death. You had experienced the death of Jesus. Yes, you remember the darkness of those three days of devastation waiting for him in the grave. And you would have remembered that Sunday when he rose from the dead and appeared to you. And yet, isn't it true, no matter what our experience with God has been like, when darkness comes again, we wonder. We wonder. And temptation shows up often much more quickly than the fulfillment of God's word. And we're left to wonder. I'm sure a temptation came over them that regularly comes over us in our waiting to trust our feelings more than God's faithfulness. Please, please hear this. I think this is deeply human, that in the midst of our waiting, we are tempted to trust our feelings more than we long or more than we trust, rather, the faithfulness of God. See, when we're alone, we're often left alone, or rather when we're waiting, we're often left alone with our feelings. And regularly, even as followers of Jesus, we are drawn to fulfill the whims of our emotion and the whims of our feeling and our invisible inclinations than we are to fulfill the word of God or to trust that God will be true to his word or that Jesus is enough to fulfill for us. See, within our modern culture, feelings have become so prized that we rarely even question our own emotions. We rarely even question our own feelings. And in fact, the cardinal sin of progressive culture is to challenge the feelings of another. To be sure, we are called to empathize, weep with those who weep, celebrate with those who celebrate. However, we have gone much too far when we no longer just weep and we celebrate, but we begin to worship our feelings. And to worship is to lay down our will as supreme, is to embrace our will as ultimate, that whatever inclination I have must be followed, must be fulfilled in order for me to be fulfilled and to be happy. And we cannot worship as Christians anyone or anything other than 
God. That's actually what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to worship God and God alone. So in replacing the will of God with the feeling of our emotions is actually a move of treason, of idolatry, and of false worship. It's not just something we're wrestling with, not just something we're struggling with. It is deeply sinful and broken. Feelings have become so esteemed in our generation, I think, because we've begun to equate them with our identity. We've begun to equate how we feel with who I am, how we feel with who I am. In particular, happiness has become the defining grid of our personally customizable truth. But my friends, let's be honest about our feelings for just a minute. Let's be honest about what feelings really are like and what happens with our feelings. See, feelings are not faithful. They leave us unsatisfied. Feelings are false. They are regularly inaccurate. Feelings are fleeting. They are here one minute and gone the next. Feelings are flippant. They are easily influenced. Feelings are fickle. They are temporal and do not last. See, obeying our feelings begins to corrode at our identity. It, doesn't, it, it does not cultivate our identity. It does not reveal our identity. Think about the shifting sand, the malleability of our feelings that cannot possibly be an enduring identity. So obeying our feelings actually ultimately kills us and corrodes the identity, the image of God that is implanted upon our souls. Because our feelings are not us. Our feelings are not our identity. Our emotions are not our identity. See, we do this individually. We're tempted, rather, to do this individually, but we're also tempted to do it as a church. We're also tempted to do it as a group. It affects the way that we relate and engage with our church family. See, I think we often choose to leave churches when we don't feel good in them. We don't feel happy in them. We're tempted as a church to make the comfort of new people, first and foremost, their feelings, the feelings of guests and visitors. And if you're a guest and visitor today, we love you, we thank you, but we don't want to put your feelings on chief display. We don't want to make them primary. This temptation of our feelings doesn't just simply affect us individually, it affects us as a community as well. It affects us as a church. We're tempted to put our feelings central, even as a church family. Think about perhaps the last church that you left, your temptation even to leave this one. A lot of times the reason that we leave communities and churches is because they don't make us feel good. In fact, a lot of the times when we're even discerning the Lord's will, it has to do with our feelings. When we talk about praying and asking God to direct and guide us, we really are just feeling our feelings. And we're feeling our way through this instead of looking to the word of God and saying, how do I obey what he has made clear? See, this is the real issue with our feelings and why we have to be so careful about putting them central, is that God's word is often in opposition to our feelings. God's word is often in opposition to our feelings. And so when our feelings become central, when our feelings are the way that we make even spiritual decisions, though it may feel good to us for a moment, we actually are in violation of God's word or we are lacking a consideration of God's word. And so we leave churches because of our feelings. We're tempted, even as a church, to put the comfort and feelings of new people central. We just want everybody to feel comfortable. Now, if you're new, so grateful that you've come today. But our desire is to not put your feelings central, but the word of God central, which actually will compromise a lot of your feeling good comfort level feelings and happiness. But it will be for your good. 
We're, we're in, in the midst of being tempted by our feelings. We want preaching that is entertaining. We want music that's uplifting. We just want to feel good and be friendly and nice. And a lot of times when our feelings become central, we create churches that may be a mile wide, but they are an inch deep. There may be large crowds that we saw in the Gospels, but they are not these intimate brother and sisterhoods that we see the 120 gathered in the upper room waiting for the Spirit of God. See, a lot of times our feelings become central when we bow the knee to the crowd. See, crowds follow feelings. Crowds obey feelings. But disciples obey the Word of God. So the question for us is how do we deny our feelings and how do we embrace and follow the Word of God? See, it is not wrong to have feelings. It is not wrong to enjoy things and to feel the way in which God is leading and has even made your body, made your mind, made your heart to engage the world. However, it is wrong to be bound by your feelings. And so when we sin in our desire as a church, and given our, to our desire as a church to be guided by our feelings or as a community to be guided by our feelings or as an as a individual to surrender to our feelings. What we are ultimately saying is that our feelings are supreme, that our feelings are Lord. And this is not what followers of Jesus do. And so the question for us is how can we move from a crowd of people that is merely obeying our feelings to disciples of Jesus that obey the word of God? Well, see, the real fulfillment that we need to recognize comes in verse 16. See, Jesus said, or rather, uh, Peter says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So as much as everything that, that, that Peter is about to say was about the fulfillment of God's word, in particular, the arrest of Jesus was about the prof prophetic and typological uh, prediction of God's word. See, scores of prophetic and typological passages point to Jesus being tried, tortured, despised, arrested, betrayed, and generally harmed for the sake of sinners like you and me. So Jesus fulfills all of these biblical whispers. But there is a deeper fulfillment still that Jesus inhabits as the Savior of the world. See, remember, an aspect of the word fulfillment has to do with completion or perfection. And hanging on a cross, Jesus utters a set of words of telling and revealing words. As the weight of sin hung heavy on his shoulders, he was heard saying, It is finished. John 19, 30. It is finished. The word translated in the English language as finished is the very same word used comprehensively in the New Testament as fulfilled. It is complete. It is perfect. It is whole. Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was the perfect fulfillment and obedience to the Heavenly Father which led to the fulfilling of every word of God. It was his holy nature, Jesus' holy nature, sacrificed on the cross, which, al which alone satisfies the holy wrath of God needed as payment for humanity's sinful condition. See, the Word made flesh obeyed the Father's will in life and satisfied the Father's wrath in death. Therefore, you and I are able 
or, or, or you and I who are obedient, rather, to our feelings, to our demise and death by faith can have a new will, a new disposition because Jesus lived perfectly and died sacrificially and rose victoriously and ascended authoritatively to free us from our bondage to our feelings. Your feelings no longer have to be your guide because Jesus died to be your master, your Lord, your ruler, your God, your king. Therefore, let your feelings fall and may you and I become faithful. You see, crowds obey their feelings. Disciples obey the word of God. This leads us back to the crowds. This leads us back to the room of 120 brothers and sisters gathered together. This leads us back to the gospel writers. But the gospel writers were showing us that crowds follow their feelings, but God's people follow the word of God. And I think this is exemplified where our passage concludes. Look at verse 23 through 26. And they put forward to Joseph called Barabbas, or rather Barsabbas, who was also Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The big picture here is the fulfilling of what David predicted in the Psalms and what God instructed through his word. They chose another. And in choosing another, they reveal their deep trust in God, not their trust in their emotions. See, 12 To have this number 12 and not be satisfied with 11 11 was emblematic of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what was whispered in God's previous people is now made alive in God's new people, the 12 apostles reflecting the 12 tribes. And notice what they did first when they came together. They prayed. Oh, that we would be a people that pray. See, when you trust your feelings, you don't pray as much. When you trust God, you can't stop praying. Then they acknowledge God's character. Look at what they say here. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. You, Lord, know the hearts of all. In other words, we're coming to you because you know everything. And side note, isn't it interesting? And this is where I think it's it's important that we see they're not trusting their feelings and emotions. The apostles were less interested in skill and talent than they were about the heart. But they knew they didn't know the heart. But God knew the heart. And so they prayed, and then they acknowledged God's sovereign choice. They said that you're the one, God, who has set this person aside. You have chosen one to take Judas's place. They cast lots, which I don't recommend, of just throwing some dice and seeing where they land. But even in casting lots, they show their deep trust in God that he orchestrates all things big, small, large, and incremental. The apostles did not rely on their own understanding. They did not lean on their own understanding. They did not trust in their whims, their feelings, and emotions. Instead, as the people of God, as the church is about to be shaped, as what the Spirit of God is about to be poured down upon them, they entrusted themselves to God's faithfulness. You see, crowds follow their feelings. Disciples obey the Word of God. As we are waiting 
we will be tempted to trust our feelings. As we are making decisions, we will be tempted to trust our feelings. As we are leading in various ways, we will be tempted to trust our feelings. But may our waiting be a drawing near to the presence and power of God. May our deciding be a reliance on the word of God. May our leading be a surrender to the true leader and master and Lord Jesus Christ. All of this we are able to do because Jesus is the one who freed us from the bondage of our feelings and has made us alive to trust in him. So in your waiting, in your wondering, in your curiosity, look to Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and took everything that you are in bondage to and nailed it to the cross so that you could be alive and be found in bondage to Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?